The following podcast is a part of RadioMisfits.com. This episode is brought to you by TweakedAudio.com. Get headphones, earbuds, and accessories from TweakedAudio.com. Just enter the discount code CAFCOMICS, that's all one word at the checkout. You'll get 33% off your entire order, free worldwide shipping, and a limited lifetime warranty on everything you buy. That's TweakedAudio.com. And now... It's time for Caffeinated Comics, a lively discussion and debate on comics, film, television, and collectibles, all fueled by the magic of Frappuccinos. And now, here's your hosts, John and Steven. Thank you, it's Caffeinated Comics, and I'm your host, John Clark. Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse is out on digital. You can buy it on iTunes and Voodoo now. If you've seen it, you know it's one of the best superhero movies that has been made in years. And so I thought this would be a great time to talk to a Spider-Man expert. Dan Gavazdin is the host of the Amazing Spider Talk, which is now in its third season. Uh, he and I got to know each other on Twitter, basically talking about Spider-Man, because if you've been listening to the show recently, you know I have been obsessed with Spider-Man and every single detail of Spider-Man. So that's what I talked to Dan about. Uh, We get into everything. We get into villains, we get into great runs, we get into bad runs, we get into the video game, we get into into the Spider-Verse. It was a really fascinating discussion, and let's get to it. What do you think made 2018 so special? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, just starting off with the monumental releases that came out in 2018, I mean, I think the biggest one being the game itself, the the Spider-Man PlayStation 4 game. I mean... Gaming culture seems to dwarf my expectations every time I get engaged with it. You know, it's, it's like, you know, I think movies are big and then I tap into games and it's like, the, the evidence is clear to me, at least from the interactions with my show, that gaming culture, at least amongst my audience has supplanted movies, uh, you know, uh, with no, no amount of comparison. Um, Yeah, I really appreciate I appreciate gaming, but I'm not that good at it. And uh, video games to me tend to be like really long novels. If I start one, I can't do another one until I finish it. I'm the uh, same way, but I still kind of keep pace with it, which is probably not healthy for me. Uh, yeah, I'm on the last DLC of Spider-Man. It's the last game I finished. I absolutely adored it. Uh, but you, but you're right. I mean, when I think back to like the Batman Arkham games, those have kind of shaped everything that happened with Batman later between the comics and then even uh what Zack Snyder did with the movies. So with Spider-Man it's um it's really going to be interesting to see what form the comics and the movies take now that the video game is such a part of the mythology. And and I welcome it too. I think it really improves on the mythology in some ways. I think specifically in regards to Miles and which we'll talk about in a minute, but uh you know, I I uh I think part of it is that the Saturday morning cartoons have gone away and the new kind of like kid collective culture is found in these video games. I mean, I don't know if one really replaced the other or that just the culture has changed and, and, and how media is delivered has changed. Kids don't need to tune in on Saturday mornings anymore. They just kind of have their phones and yada, yada. But I mean, um, my boys, I have an 11 year old and a five year old and it's all Hulu for them. And it's, it's more the iPad than the TV. I'll I'll need to call them into the room to watch TV, and they watch a lot of Teen Titans Go and or will rewatch Spectacular Spider Man. But uh, you're right; it's not it's not as important. They're kind of 
they're kind of screen agnostic, where it doesn't matter if it's a game or a TV show or the movie. I mean, I'm a high school teacher, and I couldn't tell you the last time a high school student said to me, I'm watching this TV show. Like, they just talk about games all the time. Really? Um, so to me, like, you know, it's, it wasn't my favorite thing Spider-Man related that happened last year, but, um, you know, the game was a really huge splash, I think, for the character. And, um, you know, I think it just it's, it had been a while since we had a truly great Spider-Man game. Like, I think maybe well, Shattered ever. Dimensions, you know? Yeah, um, you know, this, and it was a lot like the Arkham game in that you forgot there were Spider-Man games before it, you know, and, sure. and I realized, well, I had just played, you know, um, Shattered Dimensions or, um, Edge of Time, Edge of Time, there was that, uh, there was the one where, he, God, it's called Web of Something, where you could switch from the red to the black costume. Oh, sure, um, uh, what was the name of that game? I'm just totally like I'm blanking on it right now, terror. I know it. Yeah, but there have been like 20 Spider-Man games, but this one felt like there had never been one before. Yeah, I mean, they just kind of nailed it, you know? Like, it had all the elements we'd seen before, but they just kind of worked together really well. And I feel like that really kind of... Uh, and there was just a lot of hype around it. You know, the, the big games, the AAA games, don't come out as often these days because they take so many resources behind it. So when you find out that one of them is focused on a character... It's like all of Sony's marketing and all of their efforts were towards three games this year, and one of them was happened to be Spider-Man. So it was like a perfect kind of like uh, collision between, you know, a major video game company and this major, you know, transmedia figure, and suddenly Spider-Man, you know, just becomes a talk on everybody's lips. Yeah, that's a great point. Sony managed in 2018 to really turn Spider-Man around to the point where. You know, in 2017, we got Spider-Man Homecoming, and the feeling was that, okay, Marvel's going to take this thing over, and Sony's just going to lean back and collect the checks. But then between the video game and Into the Spider-Verse, so, uh, both of those were completely controlled by Sony. I mean, you get Marvel signing off on it, but it's, n it's not a co-production in the way that Homecoming was. And they just tended to completely nail both. It seemed like all of a sudden this year, Sony understood what they had. Well, kind of. I mean, I think Venom made them a lot of money, uh, but I, I still don't know if they understand that. I think that was like a happy accident. I mean, I, I, yeah, I, mean, I, I feel that way. Uh, I mean, like I enjoyed watching it for what it was, which is to me like uh, I, I compare it to The Room. You know, it, it's yeah. like it's a San Francisco story about a crazy man and and how his life impacts all those around him, and he seems With to be. With an implausible and, accent. Yes, and he seems to be kind of uh, taken over by some sort of alien. I mean, uh, th there are more comparisons, you know, than... I wish there was a lobster tank for Tommy Wiseau to climb into, but uh, <laughs> unfortunately we don't quite get that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, look, I'll, I'll, I'll get it out of the way. Like, Into the Spider-Verse, like, I, I'm professionally, uh, I'm a film critic, and that was my favorite movie last year. Not that my film critic credentials really gives me anything above anybody else, but uh, like that was my favorite movie last year. And of the past few years, I think it's the best superhero movie ever made. Not to, not to mention the best Spider-Man movie ever made. Uh, like that, I think it's a, an incredible work of art. And if they just told me tomorrow they were canceling all the live-action movies and doing animated ones from now on. I would be like totally for it. 
Um, and this is in a year where Avengers Infinity War came out, which was the first movie to act, to really do a Marvel crossover. And they killed Spider-Man. Yeah, I, I, and I love that movie. You know, I have some uh, some quibbles with how it portrays, like, love and abuse uh, <laughs> and kind of mixes them together. But, you know, it was the first movie of Marvel that I watched that I was like, gosh, it really finally feels like they're really getting, like, how to make all, like the action between all these characters work, you know, like it was like, okay, I'm finally seeing big splashy superhero action in, you know, on screen with Marvel. Not that I've really like been upset with it previously when like winter soldier or homecoming, but like that movie really got how you mix all these characters together. And, uh, like casually, you know, like Avengers made a big show out of it, but Avengers infinity war, it was like, they're just doing it. And that's amazing. Um, but then Into the Spider-Verse came out, and I forgot all about it. <laughs> yeah, I remember uh, seeing Venom, which was, you know, one of the best movies in 1998 made today. Uh, which And it was just odd, but the Easter egg scene at the end of Venom, well, first of all, it was Woody Harrelson and Ronald McDonald. Like, but then after that, it was just three minutes of Into the Spider-Verse, and I walked out of Venom thinking, oh my god, what is this movie going to be? I remember I wrote to my editor at the Hollywood Reporter and I said, can I write a piece on how the future of Sony's Spider-Man projects is at the very end of Venom? And, uh, and he's like, what do you mean? And I said, well, it's, it's into the Spider-Verse. Like that to me is how Sony keeps their thing going. It, you know, they can do timeless. They don't have to worry about big actor contracts, right? They, they get to uphold their legacy because they can make it Peter Parker from the Tobey Maguire verse. So they get to say like, look, no, it's our character and no one's ever going to confuse it with the Marvel cinematic universe. Like to me, it made the most sense. Like this is how Sony continues to do this without the criticism. And, but I, I you know, I, I, at that point had suspected that Venom would, would fail, but it clear, clearly did not. So we're, we're in for a number of years of Morbius movies and, and Venom two and black cat and all that other stuff. Right. Yeah. The, uh, yeah. What do you think? Why do you think Venom worked for me? It felt like Aquaman where it was just, it was just loud and crazy enough to make you not worry about what was going on, but, but it just kept going. It was like when it one, one opening weekend, I was like, fine. It was the first movie out. It's not even the first time we've seen Venom on the big screen. So Into the Spider-Verse obviously is this stunning work of art that's up for an Oscar now. But what was it about Venom that you think clicked? I wish I knew. I really do. Um, like, I mean, I think it's a curiosity, you know, but I don't know what made it hang around for that long. Maybe it was scheduling, you know, but I, I, I can't – I honestly wish I could tell you. And I think it's like one of those things where there is no real science behind movies. Like you just kind of – see what, what hits. I think, I mean, I, I got to sit down with Todd McFarlane and interview him about this. And, you know, his refrain is it's the costume. And cause it's you know, his costume. That's, that, yeah, it's his costume. Right. So like, it's him congratulating himself in a way, but I don't necessarily think he's wrong. Like, I think that like people loved venom in the nineties and that he, he got on every, was on every cartoon show. He's just been a fixture of, kids entertainment for several generations, you know, and 
yes, we got him before in Spider-Man 3, but it was never the iconic Venom look. You know, people never connected that was Venom, you know? And so I think seeing it now, people were just like, I love this costume. I love this character. Or maybe they don't even love the character. They just thought it was cool looking. And, you know, that was enough for them. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I went went to see it out of curiosity because I felt like I needed to for my show. So, like, I I know all these people don't have Spider-Man podcasts. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean... I can't imagine that word of mouth was great on it, but maybe it was. I I, I wish I could tell you. Yeah, yeah, people didn't seem to hate it. I I I don't quite get it. It's funny that uh, that you bring up the costume and that Todd McFarlane mentioned was the costume because for me personally, um, I grew up with Spider Man just around. You know, uh, I grew up. I was old enough where he was on the Electric Company and Spider Man's Amazing Friends was new, and they would rerun the old sixties cartoon but i was about 12 years old when secret wars happened and i was just starting to dip my toe into marvel comics i was reading like indiana jones and star wars and uh, a friend of mine told me to read x-men and i saw on the rack that spider-man had this black costume and then i immediately had to start buying spider-man and i haven't stopped in 35 years so that's a costume that pulled me in as a fan no uh, me too my first comic was amazing spider-man 375 which is the gold cover with him fighting Venom. And they go to that like uh, abandoned amusement park and had that big slug fest. And right. I was, I've been hooked to comics and Spider-Man ever since because the, the artwork was so damn cool. So is that what first pulled you in about Spider-Man was the artwork? Uh, I think so. I mean, I think I, I reread that issue uh, hundreds of times because uh, the well, first one I had and, and I Mark Bagley's Venom was amazing like just seeing all the tendrils wrapping around his face but i loved that there were rules about it and how spider-man could defeat him or whatever and the book opens with spider-man in like a torn up costume having to like hide his clothing somewhere and go talk to people and i thought that was fascinating um you know the book it's a weird one to start with because his parents are like captured by Venom. And at the time I didn't know the uncle Ben thing. So I'm like, okay, Spider-Man's got parents and they, they got kidnapped, you know, um, they would later turn out to be androids. Right. Yeah. But- that w- that was the weirdest story. I-, I had been reading it for a long time and, uh, my friend sold one of the issues cause that story ran for like a year and a half of his parents yeah. hanging around. And I'm, he was like, Oh, his parents are back. I wonder where that's going. I'm like, I don't know. And then he came back and he's like, so whatever happened with his parents? I was like, Oh, they're robots. And he was angry at me. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the creators were upset about it. So like uh, we had uh, a Denny finger on the show who edited the books and he like came in like halfway through it and was like, okay, well, what's the plan, you know, for, for the parents? Like who are, and they're like, we don't really have a plan. Like, we're just writing this, and eventually we'll come up with something. So, like, there really was no plan. Uh, they they just kind of pulled it out of their butts and said, oh, they're robots. Why not? Yeah, that's very much Marvel in the mid-90s, where they would have this big event that seemed like it was kicking off a story, but it had no ending. Because that was at the same time where they mysteriously killed Reed Richards and Doctor Doom, and they were just gone. And when Wolverine lost the adamantium skeleton and then he was kind of an animal in a handkerchief for like a couple of years. And it was just very clear that these stories that were supposed to have resolutions had nothing. I remember like the first Wolverine comic I ever bought was one without the adamantium where it was like 
this like I don't know if it was like Bill Sikevich or whatever, but it was like him and Nightcrawler teaming up, and it was just gnarly. Like his bones were just like sticking out of his body everywhere, and he was like mangled and hobbling around. And I'm like, what is the deal with this character? <laughs> yeah, there was there's just an odd, odd situation with that too. When uh, not to turn this into an X Men podcast, but when Wolverine lost his adamantium, every he was seven different characters because for for a while he was uh, losing his humanity, like the adamantium was keeping him human, and he was like grunting, and he was like he, he got huge, and then in other ones he was just had no shoulder pads, and he wore, like he wore a bandana, and then there were other comics where he had the claws were just tan instead of silver because he was still cutting doors and tanks apart with them. You don't know what bo- bones can do. Yeah, <laughs> I have bones, so I've got some some hypotheses. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're right. Bones are pretty fragile now that you come to think about it. So that's a weird time for you to become a Spider-Man f- fan because it was, you know, not only was that a, a dubious story, the parent story, but then you, they follow that up with the Clone Saga, which is the most notorious time for Spider-Man. Yeah, uh, no, I I mean, my thing with the Clone Saga was more that, like, it was exciting to me, but I couldn't afford it as a kid, because it was, like, four books, and they came out, like, every week, and you got these crazy multi-arc stories, you know, maximum clonage and all this stuff that went into, like, all these different titles, and I just couldn't afford it with my allowance, you know, so, like, it became one of those things that kind of got me collecting, which was, like, I can't keep up with the new books, and I'm, and after a while, I grew tired of the Clone Saga. So then it was just like, how many old books can I buy? And that's where I kind of like first latched on to like obsessing over all the details about Spider-Man and and his you know various titles over the years. And I couldn't really grasp all of it, you know, like the distinction between Amazing Spider-Man and just Spider-Man. You know, I just kind of bought anything I could get my hands on. Wow, that's a, that's the first time I've heard that where the Clone Saga was so unsuccessful that it made you a back issue fan. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't that I, it wasn't that I wasn't excited about the clones. I just couldn't afford it. So I was like, I want to get the most bang for my buck. So like, you know, I'm going to get these complete stories in these older issues. And, you know, it turned out to be a pretty good uh, investment because I got some pretty nice issues for pretty cheap, you know, that, that become key issues. Whereas most of the clone saga is in a landfill somewhere yeah. in the middle of nowhere, you know? <laughs> It's next to the E.T. Atari cartridges. Right, yeah. There's some weird crevasse we're going to crack open, and Clone Saga-filled mists are going to fill our nostrils, and yada, yada. Yeah, a few years ago, I was filling in the holes in my uh, back-issue collection, and I I gotten to the point where it was all Romita Sr., so they were getting expensive. So every now and then, when I was frustrated, I would just get, like, 10 Clone Saga issues, and I was like, well, now there's those Peter Parker numbers I didn't have. <laughs> They're still we, readily available. We had Howard Mackey on our show, and we had, one of our favorite questions we asked him was, "Is uh, how heavy is the Clone Saga?" And what he didn't did he really say? have an answer. <laughs> he didn't have an answer. But there's those new, new collected books that have been coming out for a number of years, so technically we could probably find out. Oh uh, yeah, the omnibuses. I caved uh, last week. Comicsology is having a huge sale. And I've been starting to get some of the best runs, just have them cloud-based, because I'll take my iPad to work. And I realized you could buy the entire Clone Saga digitally for $75. 
hey, not bad. And then you don't have to lug it around. That was my big thing. I'm like, I could buy this. And there is an appeal to buying it because they kind of put it in like chronological order, which I'm curious to read in chronological order because it didn't come out that way. Right. So like, I wonder how much it actually makes sense. Uh, I did it a couple of years ago. I had I had like a month between uh, jobs where I got a job offer that didn't start at the beginning of the year. And I and I was going through my collection. I was like, oh, my God, I have everything from the Clone Saga now. And I sat and read it. It it makes as much sense as you think it's going to make. There's no key issue that turns the whole thing. And no, just the revelation story at the end. Yeah, which is I think all... when people have fondness for the Clone Saga, and there are good things about it, but they're mostly thinking about that revelation story. Yeah, uh, well, and that it's it does have a good ending. I think there's really nice John Romita Jr. artwork in that. They bring Norman Osborn back, which was a little controversial, but he's stuck. Yeah, and I think people do really like Ben Riley. You see, yeah, uh, they brought this when Peter David relaunched the Scarlet Spider. Monthly and gave him a new co- Mark Bagley designed a new costume and by the third Issue people wanted the hoodie back So there is love for that Character no certainly there Is I mean I don't know if they got the character They wanted in that book but they Got something yeah So when you're going through back issues I imagine You're grabbing stuff of all different eras That are totally disconnected You mean when I was a kid yeah yeah, there was a lot of stuff and a lot of like holes, like in, in my in my collection that like I couldn't fill. So like, and some of them like were, ended up being kind of fortuitous. Like, I got those Spider-Man issues with Facade in them. Do you remember this character, Facade? Yes, it's like this like robot suit mech character whose identity was you know like well to this day never revealed. But as a kid, I got like all the issues surrounding it, but then was like, well, who is his identity? Who was the guy? And I, I, for years, I thought that I was missing like some issue where they revealed who it was. And then you know, only years later when I realized, you know, oh, they actually never did reveal who that guy was. So it was just kind of like a hodgepodge. It was a lot of just like what cover looks cool. And sometimes the, my shop owner, uh, who I ended up like getting my entire collection of the entire run of amazing Spider-Man through, you know, years later in my 20 year, 20 plus years later in my life. Um, you know, he would always just be like, you got to check out this issue. You know, this is a really cool one from yesteryear. And he was the Spider-Man guy. So, you know, he kind of was like helping this kid out, guide him through, you know, like Spider-Man stories in a way. So as you're, um, as you're finding them, were there certain eras that appeal to you more than others? Um, I, not particularly. I mean, I think I really like like the Stan Lee and 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 Dicko and Ramita stuff because it just took so long to read them. Like I felt like I got the most out of my money in those issues, and and I really liked early, like ones like obviously like the Master Planner story, and yeah. I really liked uh, the Electro uh, first introduction. I love the idea that there was this imposter, you know, guy that like J. Jonah Jameson thought was Spider Man, you know. And was trying to blame all of his actions on Spider-Man. I thought that stuff was clever. But I also, like, I, I gravitated to artists I really liked. Like, I really liked Mark Bagley when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And so I gravitated a lot to his stories. Like, Amazing Spider-Man 350 with the lizard. You know, that was a favorite one of mine. You know, I don't think I... I mean, it's it's a very similar story to Master Planner and the earlier lizard stories. But there was something about the kind of... Artwork in that and how it all kind of gelled together that I really dug. Um, so that was neat. 
Um, I really liked Roger Stern, but I don't think I really knew it at the time. Like I got the juggernaut issues and things like that and, and dug those. And uh, yeah, I don't know. It was all over the place. You know, like I, I got the fire Lord issues and, and that turned me on to like Ron friends. Um, I don't know. I, I my, my partner, my co-host on my show, Mark Janakio has this site called chasing amazing where it's like about his chase to get all the issues and where he was in his life. And I just don't have as encyclopedic a memory as he does to mm. remember all the stories behind every issue I bought. There was just like some issues that I bought that really stuck out. And it turns out most of them were kind of the classics, probably because my comic book store shop owner was like, you got to read these classics. Yeah, there were certain issues. Um, so you have all the way back to number one. I do. Wow. Yeah, I'm, I'm about 32. Uh, okay, that's uh, pretty good. I do have that, and then the um, there are three runs. I have I have amazing back to thirty two, and basically all the other titles. I also have I have uh, Fantastic Four back to fifty three, and Batman everything with the Yellow Oval. But I've I've just noticed lately, Spider Man was always my number two character when I was a kid. Um, he was behind Batman, and then when I was in my uh, teens, he was behind the X Men, and then uh, for a little while, he was behind Spawn. Uh, and then he was behind Batman again, and I'm just realizing within the last few years, I that oh my god, he's the number one spot now, and wow. there, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to uh, an, an expert on it because I'm like, what what pushed it over the edge? Yes, Into the Spider Verse was great, and the video game was great, but I'm kind of on the search to figure out like what nudged him across. And I looked around my house, and I always consider myself to be a really huge Batman fan and Batman was my expertise. Uh, and I like Spider-Man, but I also liked Iron Man. I also like Green Lantern. And I looked around my house about a year ago and I realized my two boys had way more Spider-Man than they had Batman. And it was almost this insidious thing where I realized I was surrounded by Spider-Man. The more I thought of that, the more I enjoyed that feeling and the more I got into it. Is it so, just that it's hard to be in the headspace of Batman all the time? Like, maybe. Batman's my number two. I think yeah. truly he's got the best stories in comics. Like, all of his classic stuff. Like, I just finished reading Batman White Knight shortly ago. That's and that good. book is that book is better than any Spider-Man book I've read in years, you know? Um, but, like, it's just hard for me to get in Batman's headspace all the time. Like, he's just not really a guy I relate to. Whereas Spider-Man is just the ultimate relatable guy, and and there's just something about it, like, everybody relates to him, kids, you know, that's the end of the Spider-Verse thing. And I think right. it's true even before Into the Spider-Verse made it true. Yeah, and, the, and that's the interesting thing, because I always thought of Peter Parker as the most relatable character. But Into the Spider-Verse, Peter Parker's a f- secondary character. And yet the movie is about how relatable Spider-Man is. And Miles Morales really kind of bucks the system of um, copycat heroes. Every major hero has had a copycat hero. Every major hero has had the story where they give up and somebody else becomes the hero for a while. And then, then the sales start to dip, the hero comes back, and then the secondary hero becomes the sidekick hero. It's why we have like War Machine or um, U.S. Agent. But with Miles, um, not only not only did he take over for Spider-Man that was killed off, 
But I find it fascinating that he never even took another name. He never became War Machine. He never became Spider-Boy. He's just Spider-Man. And there's something just as relatable about Miles as there is about Peter. What do you think that is? Well, I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with that movie just being incredibly well-written. Like, I think it's one of the best scripts I've seen in a really long time. I think, you know, Miles was given enough time in the comics to kind of, like, feel out what made that work. I have to be honest, I really don't like Miles in the comics. It's nothing to do with him. I just think he's been poorly written for, like, seven years. And he's only been around for seven years. Yeah, and Um, and only his creator has written him until last year. Yeah, I mean, look, Ultimate Spider-Man is my, like... I mean, probably my favorite, like, long run of a comic. Like, the the first 160 issues of Ultimate Spider-Man are amazing. And I think Miles had a lot of really great promise that was really squandered. Uh, I just don't think Bendis knew how to stick to a story for more than three or four issues at a time. And, well, that's, and that's Bendis. I mean, you look at most of his runs, like Avengers, um, he has great premises, but he doesn't. He doesn't have endings, and he tends to sweep the ending under the carpet where you expect the ending to the story, and he's like, oh, well, really what I'm doing is setting up the next story. Yeah, and Miles was that for, like, seven years. You know, like and, like, and big moments that happened would never be called back to again. It just felt like uh, his story just kept getting interrupted, and, uh, like, I, I, there's all this potential there, and then I, I feel like Into the Spider-Verse really, like, capitalized on that that potential, um, and but they also made Miles a comp- almost a completely different character than he is in the comics. Like in the comics, he's very much a Peter Parker Me Too character. Like he's like witty and jokey, like Peter, and he's into science. And you know, it, it's it, you know, he's got this uncle that's a you know big figure in his life. And the uncle is very different in the comics, you know. Um, and in, in this movie, like he's like, no, he's not into science. He's into art, you know, and he's into graffiti and. There's like code switching going on and and the school plays, you know, a, a decent sized role in his life because, you know, there's just so much more going on there um, than there is in the comics, which is typically the other way around. Like you'd expect the comics in seven years to be able to blow through a ton of interesting characterization that a movie can't get to in an hour and a half. But I, I really feel like it's the other way around. And so to me, through the video game and through Into the Spider-Verse, I'm finally getting to know Miles. Like, both of those interpretations of Miles, to me, are so much fresher than what we got in the comics. Um, and I say that, you know, upset, because Vendis's run up to that point, to me, was like, the, the, you know, it had a few arcs that were clunkers, but for the most part, you, you couldn't stop it. Um, I just don't think he really knew. It's like his character got really successful and he just didn't know what to do with that success or he let it get to his head and mm-hmm. and 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 stop doing the work he needed to do to make that character like really be a thing. And now he's in the regular Marvel universe and I just it doesn't make any sense to me to have him there. Um like the, his backstory is so confusing. I like I, I I can't invest in his stories because I just don't know who this guy is. Right. Yeah, I, the video game did a much, much better job. First of all, they didn't have to worry about that it was a character from another universe, but just kind of setting Peter up as a mentor to this kid who then gets spider powers, and there's more of a reason for him to be a mentor, I think is a more organic way in. 
Right. I mean, I uh, after the Secret Wars event in the comics, I don't think they did any work to figure out like who is Miles, what is his backstory, how does he fit into this world. They just kind of took off with it and thought it, that would be enough. And I think for a lot of people, it's really not. Um, I've heard really good things about the new series that's like three or four issues in. I read the first issue yeah. and thought, all right, this is pretty good. But even then, that that issue had like a flashback to tell Miles's like story, and it was equally confused and muddled. And I was like, I just don't know who this character is. Like, uh, I really believe that he's a stronger character in the Ultimate Universe, where he truly can be Spider-Man with no caveats and has true purpose, you know, embedded into him. He's the guy that's picking up for a dead Spider-Man. He's had his Uncle Ben moment, but here in the regular Marvel Universe, I'm like. I don't really know why Miles gets out of bed in the morning. Like what, what's pushing him? I, I'm not, I'm still not really sure. Right. Yeah. And you almost think that they could have just kept the ultimate universe going with just miles book, even, even without everything else, which is interesting because it seems like every time Marvel tries to reboot their universe and do different versions of all their characters, Spider-Man's the only one that succeeds. Because that's what happened with 2099. That's what happened with M2, which gave a Spider Girl. Right. And that's and what happened like, with the Ultimate Renew Universe. Your Vows. Yep. Yeah. Renew Your Vows was a Secret Wars event still around. And I always find it interesting that Peter's a fairly simple character. And he, as you said, he's so relatable, but he, he seems to be more malleable than. The least I had ever thought, because you bring up Batman and uh, White Knight is a great story, but it's a self-contained story. And Batman's great at self-contained stories. You don't really need to read Batman as a title for 10 years. But with Spider-Man, you there's always the feeling that it's the same Peter it was in Amazing Fantasy 15. And if you re- you have to kind of stretch your imagination a little bit, but you could read all of Amazing Spider-Man as the biography of one person's life. Which right. to me, which to me would be okay. That character is singular. You can't repeat that character. But every time they repeat that character, it's successful. Yeah, I, I, yeah. For the most part, I mean, there's there's few points in his timeline where, uh, you know, like things didn't really work out, bad writer pairings or whatever. But the character is always kind of sustained. I mean, I think the only true breaking point is the one more day, you know, fiasco, which lost a lot of people. From reading the comics. Um, I still talk to people today that are like, I will not pick up a new Spider-Man comic because of that one more day. And I think it, that's another thing that's also unique to Spider-Man, which is like, I don't think any other character, if you did something like that, people would like go, I'm never reading that character again. People had such a personal reaction to that because Peter was such a real guy to them that they just were like, I'm done. That My Peter is gone. You know, it's really? like a death in the family. Yeah. That's interesting. When I read it, uh, I honestly, my reaction was like, well, they already made his parents robots, so they might as well have the devil give him a divorce. And uh, I didn't like it any more than anybody else did. But the very next issue was Brand New Day, which I loved. And uh, since Brand New Day, I have enjoyed Amazing Spider-Man. So it was something I could put in my rearview mirror. It's interesting that so many people can't. My co-host and I are famous brand new day apologists. Like we don't love one, one more day, mm-hmm. but like once you get out of the initial stages of brand new day and into like the heart of it, it, you get some of the best Spider-Man comics we had gotten in years. I mean, 
I mean, well, that's not necessarily true at the time because Straczynski's run was mostly amazing until you got to like the later half of it. After the minute John Romita Jr. left that book, it was like a, there was a real loss on that. I book. was I was just saying that, which is so it's so unusual. It's just odd timing because Romita wasn't co-plotting, you know, and no. and Romita Jr. is a guy who he's very much like I'm doing the job. So he's like, whether he agrees with the story or not, he's like, I'll draw the hell out of this story. But you can see it. The issue, the issue after he leaves is automatically like Norman Osborn has kids with Gwen Stacy. Yep. And I don't know what it was. It's like, maybe he left the book because editorial was like leaning into it and it wasn't fun anymore. But yeah. And you get like this kind of weird molten man story. Yeah. It's not the molten man. And then there's like an Avengers crossover and the book just becomes like very different immediately. It's like, Oh, this was not at all. You know, this is not at all the story that he seems interested in telling. Like you, then you got like the other and well, yeah. Well, the other, I think in some ways is worse than one more day. Oh, it's, it's really rough. Really I was just ta- I was just talking to Mark Wade. Um, there was this whole thing a few weeks ago with Comicsgate where um, they had appropriated one of Michael Ringo's drawings. So all of the people that had worked with Michael Ringo were putting out artwork that no one had ever seen. Sure, I remember and Mar- this. And Mark Wade was putting out um, pitches that he and Mike had done that didn't get picked up. And he's like, "Here's our Aquaman. Here's our Legion." And uh, I met Mark a few times. We've never been able to get him on the show. But I tweeted him. I said. Hey, I've just been reading Mike's Friendly Neighborhood run again, and I thought I remembered you were supposed to write that. You guys had just finished Fantastic Four, which is one of my favorite runs on Fantastic Four, and it seemed like Marvel wanted to give them a higher-profile character. And But Peter David ended up writing that run, and he tweeted back to me. He goes, yeah, I couldn't make that crossover work. So Mark Wade saw the other and said, I'm not doing Spider-Man. <laughs> and, there's, and here comes Peter David. He's like, weird. I do weird exclusively. Yeah, and Peter David, I mean, Peter David's written The Death of Gene DeWolf. He's written some of the best Spider-Man stories ever. And some weird Spider-Man story. And he's he's had a career lately where he's been doing a lot of the ancillaries. He did a run on 2099. He did a run on Scarlet Spider. Yep. I don't have anything to say about that because I'm not (laughs) a big fan of those books. Well, I did. Yeah, I joined Comixology Unlimited just to read the books I wasn't reading. And I tried the first trade of every spider character. And I was like, no, I was right to stick with Peter. Um, Yeah. (laughs) I don't really like bashing Peter David, but like if his name appears on a book today, I just don't read it. Like, or I've, I've kind of resigned myself to not reading it. I just think his books are a mess. Yeah, but it, you, he is in that place like John Byrne. It's like, I will never take away what he did before. Sure, sure. But John Byrne is also involved in the worst Spider-Man stories ever. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So with the highs and lows, what's, what's the run that you personally hate? Oh, it's got to be the, like, the volume two reboot and like i don't hate it it's just every issue is forgettable like yeah I, I, like if you were to quiz me on those issues the first 30 issues of those before straczynski came on it, i could like nobody ever references them they just they don't like 
they're hard to find because they were a very low print run, and so they cost me a fortune to buy. Oh, the venom, uh, the venom and carnage issues are astronomically expensive for the quality they are. Oh my god, they're like two. I saw one at, at a convention last weekend for two hundred dollars. I was oh like, god. "Are you going to be kidding me?" That that wow! I paid twenty five for one and felt ripped off. <laughs> oh no! Well, this one was bagged and boarded and 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 CGC graded. So oh I god. mean, there you go. Yeah, it's odd. That run, I agree with you. Uh, chapter one is the only thing I can kind of remember, and I remember not liking it. Well, no, but, chapter one was a big mistake. I mean, yeah, that's that that that's pretty bad for me. It's like the worst stuff is the stuff that I just forget, you know, yeah. or want or want to forget. I'm going to be a little apocryphal. I think Dan Slott's volume three, right after Superior Spider-Man, is amongst the worst run of Spider-Man. Really? Um, I think it's truly terrible. Is that um, that's uh, that's the Silk stuff? It's not the yeah. Peter's. It's not Peter's. T- or is it Peter Tony Stark? Is that volume? No, four? that's volume four. Okay. Yeah, uh, volume three is the Silk stuff and Spider Verse and all that stuff. Uh, I just I think it's that was the most trying time for me as a spider a modern spider-man fan i just i found it like every issue like i mean my show covered it in great detail because we reviewed all those issues on the show and uh there were times where my co-host and i would mess each other off off uh mike and be like do we really want to keep doing this show like i think we <laughs> changed our whole format because we just so didn't want to talk about those issues anymore. We like they were just painful for us. Um, I know that some people love Spider Verse, but like to me, it's Dan Slott at his absolute worst. Um, it is indulging in all of his worst tendencies as a writer, and um, and I say this is a guy who started the show because he loved Dan Slott's work on Superior Spider Man. Um, so yeah, I mean that to me is like the modern equivalent of. Volume two, the first part of volume two. Mm-hmm. It's just a lot of stories where Spider-Man is like not doing anything where his supporting cast is like, you know, winning the day for him. There seemed to be no clear vision and the stories were bogged down in like exposition and uh, pointless character beats that like cut against character beats from the previous issue it just, I think Dan Slott really struggles to write Peter Parker, and it never showed more than, in, than in, in that volume. Yeah, well, that is the beginning. I think Superior was such a big hit where he was writing essentially somebody else as, as Peter, as, and, well, as Peter and Spider-Man, that, yeah, the book did become about look at all these Spider-Man, which is what Spider-Man is today. As we said, there's the Into the Spider-Verse movie, the Spider-Man video game. Not only is it every costume, but Miles is in it. There's a talk of other Spider-Mans. Uh, there's so many ancillary books now that never were before. So uh, so that's a, so. did he win you back with like the Tony Stark stuff? or? Uh, kind of. I think it was like a case-by-case basis. I think the minute Stuart Eminem came on the book, it got a lot better. Um, I think Stewart really can like make any writing better. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, he's just one of the best artists in the industry. Um, I mean, there, there's still things that kind of bug me about it, but like overall, like I, I think the last 12 issues or so of Dan Slott's run were really fabulous. And so yeah. that kind of like put a smile back on my face. 
uh, you know, about about the run. I mean, it's a very memorable run. I think Dan Slott's a great ideas guy, and I, maybe it was just be putting on my critic's hat. It was like forced me to really pay attention to it, and it just when you really put it under a spotlight, it's like well, not not much would hold up under a spot intense spotlight, but. When you really are paying attention, there are things that just, to me, unforgivable. But like those last 12 issues really kind of brought me back around. I mean, I I can't help but look at Stuart Eminem's art and think, not think this is the greatest thing ever. So, um, you know, and and I think the writing really did, like it became clear in his like working towards an end game uh, that he like had to sharpen his vision a little bit and get more direct and uh, to me, that really improved the writing and, and, and the overall quality. Yeah, well, the Red Goblin is really a great story, and it yeah, yeah, it is for the most part. I mean, there are a few things here and there, like what's up with like Elizabeth Osborne coming back and weird things like that. But overall, like the, the conclusion to that story is one of the greatest moments in Spider-Man history. Yeah, and I I think uh, it shows. I'm a huge uh, collector of Marvel Legends. I probably spend more money on action figures than I ever spend on comics. Uh, and it's always, that's always kind of like a hall of fame moment that the red goblin figure was introduced about six months after that story arc. Do you want to hear a really funny red goblin story? I do. This is not, this is something I can't confirm. So I'm just throwing it out there into the universe. So like three years ago, two and a half years ago, um, on my show, uh, you know, we have a, a, a voice call-in hotline, and our number is Nine Red Goblin. And so I had to create this phone lo- line, and I, and I wanted to find something that was easy to remember for people. So I was entering in, like, a un, you know, randomized number to get, like, a hotline online. And I was like, how do I come up with go- – like, I can't fit Goblin in. Green Goblin is too long for a phone number. So I was like, well, Red Goblin works. So we, I, I created our phone line, which is nine red goblin and it, the red goblin became a character on our show. And we had people who used to call in doing the voice of the red goblin, but this is years before the character was created in the comics. Um, it was just this thing, this red goblin character and, and it was this whole thing. So then suddenly I like open up the page of my comic or the solicit and here is the Red Goblin appearing in comics exactly as he's described on my show. Wait, uh, so he was described as like the Carnage symbiote on Norman Osborn? Exactly. <laughs> that, is, that is good. And you've had Dan Slott on your podcast, right? We have not. He's the one oh. person that refuses to come on the show. Interesting. Well, he, he spends a lot of time with John Suntress. <laughs> he does. Yes. And I've talked to John about John Suntress about this very thing. Um, yeah. So I can't say anything about that, and nor would I ever take like credit for it. It's just a very like amusing uh, thing. We have no idea the identity of the person is that calls into our show as the Red Goblin. So it has led people to speculate that perhaps it could be Dan Slott. And I, I don't think that that's true. Um, but to this day, an, an ongoing mystery, whether or not the Red Goblin sprung forth in any way from my random numbers on a hotline. That's great. Well, that's a perfect segue to talk about villains. Uh, I, it's, 
uh, common knowledge, basically, people say that Batman has the greatest rogues gallery in comics. But when you compare them to Spider-Man, there is just as many great villains. And there's a visual element that Batman doesn't have. For the most part, Batman has uh, mutilated guys in three-piece suits. Whereas whereas, uh, Spider-Man's visuals, uh, Ditko alone, uh, the, the silhouette of characters like Dr. Octopus have never been matched. Who who are your favorite villains? Um my favorite villain is the Hobgoblin. Uh of of all of them. I know that's like kind of weird since he's like a spin-off of another several characters. Um but I love the mystery around the who the Hobgoblin is. I think it's the best sustained mystery in the Spider-Man lore, even if the reveal of it was ultimately bungled and then had to be changed 15 to 20 years later to be corrected. Um, I just love that character and, and even the kind of the behind the scenes story of like all the people who contributed to it and ultimately like messed up every aspect of who that character was until the original creator had to come back and fix it all. Um, I just, to me, the hobgoblin is like one of the nerdiest villains in his backstory and, and how he was handled. And, but I also just love the kind of threat that he held over the book for years. Um, so he's my favorite uh, of the villains. I don't think his design is particularly special. Oh, okay. Uh, so we were, we were totally simpatico until there. Uh, the Hobgoblin is also my favorite villain. Oh, I mean, like, I like his design, but it's not like super original. You, you know what I mean? Like, no, but it, that's, that's what I love about it. I I love that uh, the original version, John Romita Jr. and Ron Friends, before before they started tattering his cape and obviously before they sure. started demonizing him. But I love the fact that, especially when you found out it was a fashion designer, just basically just looked at the Green Goblin suit and was like, how can I make this just a little more stylish? Yeah, right. Yeah, no, I, lo- I love the Hobgoblin. Um secondary to that i mean i think mysterio is always really fun when he shows up um i wish they would kind of clean up who mysterio is and i i feel like we might be getting that in in the nick spencer run on the book they kind of did some work with it saying like how he came back from hell or whatever um so he's the main villain in far from home so marvel has a lot of incentive to do a big mysterio story that'll pull in new fans yeah i just he doesn't show up a lot, but when he does, I'm always really tickled by it. Um, you know, he's a lot of fun. I mean, there, there's a lot of really, it, it's like story to story. Like if you asked me five years ago, I would have told you the rhino is my favorite because <laughs> he had that really great story during brand new day that to me was like, Oh yeah. To me, that was like the best Spider-Man story in like years. Um, you know, it, it's like, who's it fresh in my mind, you know, at any, any given moment. I mean, does, does J. Jonah Jameson count? I mean... J. Uh, Jonah Jameson, I think, counts as the best, single best supporting character of any any comics. The one thing the movies really bother me is that we haven't had a J. Jonah Jameson in 12 years. And I think it's... Uh, there. No one can step into the shadow of J.K. Simmons. But if you didn't have a Commissioner Gordon in a Batman movie for 12 years... It would be noticeable. Yeah, I think I think they're just terrified to cast someone other than him. But I think they need to take it an absolute opposite direction. You know, like 
if we got like, this young Spider-Man, let's embrace like young media. It's some like person that trends on Instagram as the new J. Jonah Jameson or something well, like that. Our our personal theory on this show is that JB Smoove is J. Jonah Jameson. Uh, well, they, they I've seen that online, and I think that's actually a really great idea. Um, I don't know if he like he's smarmy enough that you want to punch him, but you still like him. You, yeah, you know what I mean. And he, and, uh, and he talks very fast. Yeah, uh, I don't know if I believe him as being like quite so angry, but I don't know if I need that. Yeah, I think that would be a really great casting, and uh, I, I'm hopeful for it. But uh, you know, I, I think there's a real possibility that like. Uh, the opening of Far From Home is like him getting torn apart by a J- Jameson type and then deciding to leave the country because he just doesn't <laughs> want to have to deal with it, you know? Um, yeah. I think that that could be the real context for, for that. But uh, yeah, I hope you're right. I think that would be really neat casting. Yeah, I don't think J.B. Smooth would be an angry J. Jonah Jameson, which would be the spin on it, but he would be he would never stop asking for more pictures of Spider-Man. And I no. could, I could watch that for ten minutes straight. Yeah, and and you might get the you might get the chance to. Um, I mean, I think the casting of Jake Gyllenhaal as Mysterio is inspired, mm-hmm. uh, especially if there's a scene in the movie where he gets to wear a Spider-Man costume. Like, well, it's as me, ins- it's as inspired as Michael Keaton as the Vulture. Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think these guys really know what they're doing, and. Um, but he's got to wear the Spider-Man costume to complete that meta joke. They they just have to. Yeah, in the same way Nicolas Cage played Superman in Teen Titans Go to the Movies. Yeah. So if you saw like Jake Gyllenhaal's announcement that he was playing Mysterio, he had that uh, that the Amazing Spider-Man. I was like three seventy-seven. Uh, that's probably the wrong number. It's oh no, it's with- it's a McFarlane, so it's got to be like three fifteen. Right. Yeah, it's like I think it's like three seventeen or something like that. Yeah. I know there's a seven in there somewhere. Uh, um, anyway, it's like yeah, it's got the Spider-Man in the fishbowl helmet image, and like and Jake Gyllenhaal says like his tweet said something like, "Wait, I'm not playing Spider-Man," which makes me believe that like uh, like there's a part of the script that he's like joke reading where he you know is in a Spider-Man costume. And it's like a big meta joke about how he once almost played Spider-Man. There's no way they're not going to have him in a Spider-Man costume. I'm just fixated on this concept. Yeah, but they're so smart. They always they always step around the meta joke. It was like one of the things I loved about Homecoming was that you you got Michael Keaton to be the vulture because he was Birdman and Batman. And there was never a wink to either of those characters. Michael Keaton just went in. He's like, I'm just playing this guy. And there was that meme around... Uh, around Infinity War where people said when uh, Benedict Cumberpatch and Robert Downey Jr. meet, they have to say no shit Sherlock. And Kevin Feige said, yeah, we thought of that joke and thought it was hacky. So I feel like if they do that, it'll be such, it'll, it'll undercut that moment so much that you won't realize it happened until you've already left. But that's such a much more niche thing than, than either of the things you just said. Like how many people actually knew that Jake Gyllenhaal was once tapped to play Spider-Man to replace Tobey Maguire. Right. I just think it's such a magnitude smaller, and they love the Easter eggs in these movies. Yeah, um, it, it, it's got to be very subtle if it happens, I think. 
I don't know if you've read my Easter egg articles for the Hollywood Reporter, but I'm, I've kind of become famous for them and like going to see the movie once and then finding hundreds of things in the movies. So now Sony has started sending me stuff early and being like, hey, see what you find in this. Huh. And I swear that they threw all those Easter eggs into the Far From Home trailer just for me to pick it apart. I'm like, <laughs> they're doing this for me. Yeah, there's a Hydro Man, kind of. Well, no, the, like each one of those things, like if you look at the Sandman thing that appears, if you mm-hmm. look and you zoom all the way in on the license plate, it's you know it says like ASM4 on the license plate. And it's like, oh, then, it, yeah, it is Sandman. Really? Yeah, there's all kinds of really obscure stuff going on in that trailer. So what do you, um, we're almost at an hour. This has gone by so fast. Oh, uh, my God. But what are you looking forward to most in Spider-Man in 2019? We didn't get a chance to really talk about Nick Spencer's run on Amazing, and obviously Far From Home is a huge movie. But what are you most excited about right now with Spider-Man? It's Nick Spencer's run. Um, I uh, Nick. So several years ago, one of my listeners asked me, like, who would be your dream team to get on the book after Dan Slott? It was like the most asked question on our show. It's like, who should replace Dan Slott? To the point that we like stopped answering it, and I was like, I don't really want to talk about this anymore because we're gonna, you know, de- enjoy Dan Slot while we got him. And uh, but I did say that my dream pick was Nick Spencer and Ryan Otley, and somehow that the universe aligned and made my dream come true. Um, and I loved the first issue of this run. I think it's one of the best Spider-Man books. We've gotten in years. It was just so smart. And I've liked a lot that's come since. But I haven't really gotten back to loving the book again. Like, I think it's all very smart. But I'm still waiting to see, like, where it's all going. To me, it seems like a lot of setup right now. And a lot of, like, realigning characters back to where they used to be. And kind of, like, unpacking the Dan Slot run. In a very respectful manner. Um... And so I don't really feel like we've gotten a true stamp of what Nick Spencer wants to do with the book quite yet. And I think that's coming down the pike with this mysterious villain character um, who on our show we've called Shush for Spider-Man's <laughs> Hush because um, he looks like Hush. Anyway, um, I think what the when that character finally starts to like engage with the rest of the story a little bit more and actually interact with Peter Parker's life, I'm very excited to see what Nick Spencer's got up his sleeve because I know he's a great writer. Um, I'm just waiting to see, like, okay, start bringing the punches. Like, let's let's see what you've got in store for Spider-Man. And Hunted will probably kick it all off, and I'm hoping by the end of 2019 we're getting a little more information about this so-called shush character. Um, I'm just ready to see his run kick into gear, and um, I think it's going to deliver this year. Yeah, I agree. I feel like uh, the two books I'm enjoying the most right now, uh, I don't love, which is Tom King's Batman and Nick Spencer's Amazing Spider-Man. But I enjoy every issue that I read. And with Tom King, I mean, Tom King is like 65 issues in. When I step back and reread his stories, I go, oh, actually, this was a great story, but I just needed to get the whole thing. And I do agree with you. I think Nick Spencer, it's been... 
you're right. There's been a lot of resetting to classic Spider-Man mode. There's a bit of sequelizing to Superior Foes, which was a fantastic book. But he needs to do one big story to really kind of plant the flag on what his run is. And I do think it's coming. Yeah, I think Peter Parker has kind of been largely absent from his run other than the first issue. Like, we got a lot of Peter. And then each one has been kind of like... This is the story about Boomerang, and this is the story about Jonah, and this is the one with Mary Jane. And I think it's put all the characters into a really healthy place, except Peter. Like, everything with him is on hold. Like, what is Peter's new job? We don't know. Like, you know, what is Peter's new goals? We don't really know. Like, I don't, I want to know what's going on with Peter, and I, I feel like we're about to get there. And, and then the book will probably, like, attain what it's possible for but in the meantime like ryan otley's art like is a dream i never imagined i would get like i'm the biggest invincible fan and like if i were to put my top three characters it'd be like spider-man batman and invincible you know and suddenly i've got well i the book literally looks like invincible because it's ryan otley but like peter looks like mark grayson uh with a different haircut so like that's been really fun yeah, he's great. Uh, his Instagram feed is fantastic because he posts a lot of pencils of covers before they come out. Yeah, all I want is to see him do a Spider-Man versus Venom fight, but I feel like the Venom character is so moved on from the Spider-Man universe, which I I find really unfortunate um, because I think he works best as Spider-Man's villain. But, um, I mean, I think Otley draws one of the coolest-looking Venoms, and uh, I think it would be a shame to never get like him to draw that monster book with Venom in it and Spider-Man squaring off against him. That's all I want. Yeah. Venom's become like Punisher where I still think Punisher is a great Spider-Man villain. I I never quite bought him as his own hero. And I think Venom's getting that. I mean, we did have a Spider-Man Venom crossover about a year ago, so it might be a little while, but I, I wouldn't rule out Venom's return, especially now with the movie doing so well and we're getting a sequel. It's true. And if you look on the double fold cover of issue one, Venom is on there along with a number of other villains we've seen. And the only ones we haven't villains on that cover that we haven't seen in the book itself, I think is like, well, no, we did just get Scorpion. Um, I guess the we Vulture. Did. We, no, we got the Vulture too. We got the uh, Vulture. Yeah, the Vulture's got uh, like a force field fishbowl Mysterio head now. Did did we get Sandman yet in in Spencer's run? I'm I, I'm t- totally slipping my mind. I don't think we have. We haven't had any goblins yet. No, uh, but they're not on that cover. No, and Doctor Octopus is kind of in this uh, superior mode, so we haven't had a classic Doc Ock. And he's not on that cover either. I'm looking thinking about the cover for the first issue. And right. I guess the only villain on there that we haven't dealt with is Venom and Sandman. So you know. That's pretty good. There's like eight other characters we've all dealt with. So you you could be right. Venom could be around the corner. Well, Dan, thank you so much for coming on and talking about Spider-Man. This was a lot of fun. Uh, I, I, ho- I hope I could keep things positive. I, I feel like I've been a little negative, but uh, no, not I love Spider-Man. I think um, you've been critical, which is what what we wanted. You don't want somebody to come on and go, I love everything. Well, that's good. I love most things. And I, uh, Spider-Man, even the worst Spider-Man, like I've said, like volume two, like, look, I own all of them and I have a whole show about it. 
and I've had those creators on my show. So there's a part of my heart that still beats for even the worst Spider-Man story. Well, speaking of your show, how can people follow it and how can people follow you on social media? Yeah, sure. Uh, my show is called The Amazing Spider Talk. All you have to do is just go on iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play or pretty much anywhere that podcasts can be found. Uh, and uh, you can download and subscribe to the show. There's also AmazingSpiderTalk.com, which is like the hub for all of my writing and, and you know, yada, 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 yada. Um, but yeah, check us out. We're doing um, seasonal content. So... We are in the middle of season three. It's kind of a new format for us where we're looking at the history of the character and slowly working through uh, on topic-based episodes through the full history of Spider-Man. So we're in the middle of the Bronze Age right now. We just had Jerry Conway on this week to talk about how his story, The Death of Gwen, kind of kicked off the Bronze Age. So uh, some pretty exciting stuff. Uh, and uh, you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is at sup spider talk and that's kind of a great place to kind of keep up with me on uh, all the things i'm doing and check out my writing in the hollywood reporter i guess my biggest piece right now is uh i saw spider verse once in theaters before it came out and wrote a list of like 70 easter eggs i found in the movie so that's a really fun piece to read Thanks again to Dan for coming on the podcast. If you'd like to follow me, I am at Not In My Book on Instagram and Twitter. That is the official Caffeinated Comics social feed. You can also follow our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Caffeinated Comics, for all the news that we find during the week and present to you and let you know first when the new episode is out. We will talk to you next week.